good to be with you all. Welcome this morning to Peak Community Church. Let's read the scripture. This is uh, John 13, 31 through 35. Verse 31, when he had gone out, so that's talking about Judas. This is Jesus's last night. This is the night, uh, the final night he spends with his disciples. This is the Last Supper. And this is the moment when Judas leaves to go and betray him. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and will glorify him at once. Little children, I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Glory is a word that we don't often use, kind of an uncommon word, although I did see it yesterday. Miles and I were at Best Buy, and uh, we were walking around and there was a little display set up for gaming equipment. And, and on the display it said, for the glory. We do, we do associate glory with sports. Um, and, and we were talking about that, the, the middle schoolers and I were talking about that on Thursday about, um, you know, when does glory come in sports? Is it, the, is it the person who hangs out on the sidelines? Is it the person who never takes a shot? Or is it the person who's in there, the bottom of the hoop, getting knocked around, getting elbowed, but trying and sometimes failing? Where is the glory? The glory is, of course, the person who's trying, the person who's in it, um, not the person on the sidelines, not the person who's carefully avoiding danger, avoiding risk, avoiding the action. But I want to make a distinction here. Um, between glory and some of the things we're most accustomed to that I'd like to call, uh, we can call them marvels. We can call them charms. Um, well, here's an example. I remember a time when I thought that if we, if we as, a, as a human race, if we had gotten to the point where we could interact with a screen using our fingers instead of a keyboard, then we would definitely be in the future. We would for sure, this would be the future. We would be there. And, and I remember the first time I had seen someone demonstrate what they were calling a touch screen. Um, I thought, here we are. Bring on the flying cars and the jetpacks. It's time. We are now in the future. And then what happened? Well, yeah. Well, so what happened? What happened is it, it, it kind of wore off, didn't it? You know, I, I mean, I'm still doing this. I, you know, I'm either crazy or, or something, there's something missing. I mean, we do live most of our lives by machines. We travel by machines, we communicate by machines, we shop by machines, we pay by machines, and we're entertained through machines. Um, robots wash our dishes. Robots, for some of us, vacuum our floors. Um, robots preserve our food. Uh, we, I mean, in some ways we really are in the future. 
We have unprecedented power, unprecedented control, unprecedented opportunity. We can know anything that we want. We live longer. We have so much more time. We can live wherever we would like to live. We can be connected to anyone we like, and it's all stunning, and it is all marvelous, and it is all charming. Oddly, we are still bored. We're bored. We can get anything we want. Frustratingly, we only get what we want. And that is marvelous, but it's temporary. That's the difference. Something that's marvelous lasts for a moment or a little bit of time. Glory is the thing that never gets boring. Glory is the thing that lasts forever. If it is glory that we seek and not just marvels and not just charms, how do we find it? Well, John 13 is a, is a very unusual place to find glory. I mean, as I said, this is Jesus's final night. This should be the culmination of a lot of hard work on Jesus's part. He chooses to spend his final night with his disciples and these disciples end up being frustratingly human. They, at this point, misunderstand everything Jesus has taught them. They've been with him by his side, glued to his hip for three years, and one of them is making grand gestures about loyalty and within a few hours will deny him. Others are fighting over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, da-da-da-da-da. And, you know, most painfully, one of them will eat food from Jesus's own hand and be kissed on the cheek and still, still betray him. Just for some moments. And yet, this is the moment. This is the very moment when Jesus says, the Son of Man has been glorified and God in him. This is glory. <clears throat> this is the final shot at the buzzer. This is breaking the Olympic world record. This, of all times, is the moment of glory. How can that be? The reason is this. God's glory is because in this moment we see all of who God is and we see it most clearly. And what we don't see is unlimited power. What we don't see is tons of control. We don't see someone who can do whatever they want anytime they want. The fullness of God is love all the way to the end. That's the source of glory. He says he's going to go away, but his love will not. Therefore, his glory will not. His glory will remain. And he says that we can share in his glory by doing the same thing he has done. He has loved us. We can share in this eternal glory by loving one another. So glory comes from love. But what sort of love leads us into glory? Well, to put it simply, um, Jesus was in it for the long haul. Jesus stayed put. You know, most of his life, 30 or 90% of Jesus's life, we get very little information about. What does he do? 
He just exists in a place. He's just there. A little village called Nazareth in a hilly region of Palestine called Galilee in a remote corner of the Roman Empire in a time that we call antiquity. He could have appeared as an adult and gotten the job done. He's God. Why not? But instead, Jesus was born into a family and lived a very ordinary existence. Jesus had teachers. Jesus had friends. Jesus was apprenticed to a trade. He knew about the ways to get places. He knew the best ways to get places. Three times a year, he went to Jerusalem his whole life. He knew the dusty road. He knew getting up the hills. He knew going down into the valleys. He knew the blazing hot summers of Israel. He lived there long enough to see an olive tree planted and have to wait seven years before a single olive is produced. 90% of his life was just like ours, near to the people he loved, living in ordinary existence. That is the beginning of glory. It's not all of it, but that is the beginning, the necessary beginning of glory. We think of this kind of life as exactly the opposite of glory. We think of it as unglamorous. We think of it as boring. And it's true sometimes. It's true. Sometimes it can feel that way. But it is the ground of love and the only way. I want to tell a story about glory, a contemporary story, though that doesn't take place in our area where we live not even in our continent. It took place in 2001 in a a country called Malawi on a continent called Africa. It takes place in a rural area, a place that everybody is leaving and everyone is rejecting. They're rejecting this place by selling all the trees for logging and by cutting down and selling all the trees, it's ruining the soil. And so the place is subject to flooding. And by being subject to flooding, it means the farmers can't stay there anymore because when the rainy season comes, the water doesn't seep into the soil. Instead, it washes away all the seed and it washes away all the topsoil as well. Coupled with this is political detachment. Political leaders who don't care about the place just care about power and money. Everybody is abandoning this little, this little village called Wimbe because they think it's a place that's devoid of glory. Glory is not possible in this little village called Wimbe. But there is one man who's determined foolishly to remain. His crop has been ruined. He has almost nothing left. His family is literally starving. During the dry season, he tries to coax a crop out of the ground, but it's all ridiculous. It's absurd. It's like Don Quixote trying to go against the windmills. There's no rain. How is it even possible? You have to have water to survive, and there is no water. But the father is determined, and he insists, and it seems like there's no hope. But the father has a son, and his son is clever. His son is clever with a determination to use the gifts that he has to help his family and to help the land. So the boy stumbles on a way to harness the power of the wind by using it to power a water pump. It's not easy to build. It's actually extremely difficult. He has to figure out how to do it. 
He has to get the supplies and he has to get the help. So he enlists his friends and his friends are these people who don't go to school, who are just random kids around, who, who don't have an education, who are just, who just seem useless. But to the son, they actually are really important. They're essential to what he's trying to do. He enlists them and then he goes to the junkyard, the place where everything has been discarded. And he finds there things that are extremely useful that can actually potentially save his village. So he draws on discarded people. He draws on a discarded place and discarded objects. But the last thing he needs to make his invention a reality is a bicycle. He has to have a bicycle. There's no other way to do it. And the only person he knows with a bicycle is his dad. Well, this is a problem because bicycles are essential tools in rural Malawi. For his dad to give up his bicycle, it would ruin him. So his dad at first reacts with anger when his son asks him for the bicycle, because he won't get it back, it'll be cut up into pieces. His dad is furious, but his father realizes if he wants a relationship with his son, he's gonna have to give him his bicycle. So he gives him the bicycle, the bicycle's cut up into pieces, this bizarre structure is built, that looks just ridiculous, but it works. The turbine works. Wind power is transferred to electricity in a car battery and the battery pump powers the pump, which then pumps water from the well into the fields where the crops are watered, offering not only something amazing or marvelous, harvests, food, but something even more wonderful and glorious, a way for a family to live on the land and to live together. I love this story for a few reasons. This is a true story, by the way. Uh, I love this story for a few reasons. One is, you know, I started off talking about technology and all the devices that we have. Well, this isn't a sermon, sermon against technology. Technology was essential in the story that I told, but but the point wasn't technology. He was using technology to do something even more glorious, which was to live well together as a family and to live well on the land. The bigger question at the heart of this story isn't how to figure out the technology. It had existed for a very long time. I mean, the books were there, opportunities there. We're talking 2001. You know, I mean, when did the iPhone come out? I don't even know, but it was close. So it's not really a story about technology. It's a story about how to be together and what it takes to be together. Either, we can either do one or two things with technology. We can either put all of our hope and all of our faith in our devices and our life slowly ebbs away as we are drained, just as a battery and a device is drained. Or sometimes we think that we have to abandon them completely and go out and live in the forest with, you know, I don't know, you, you can imagine what that life might be like. But maybe it's not that, about that at all. Maybe it's about looking around at our relationship and asking ourselves, what would it take for us to live well with each other? and for us to live well in the places that God has put us. 
And if we can do that, maybe then we have the opportunity for glory. The father is at the center of the story, even though it's the son who solves the problem. And the father is at the center of the story because he insists on love being at the center of his life. Love for his land, love for his family. He does it imperfectly. He makes a lot of mistakes, but somehow this love is what triumphs in the end. His greatest act of love was actually learning how to trust his son, to give up his bike, to realize that his son might be more clever than him. His son not only figured out the water problem, but also figured out how to build relationships with neglected and discarded things and people. And that's what led to the solution. These discarded friends, uh, a library with some books that nobody read, a junk heap, and even his relationship with his father. The boy was able to receive his father's love, love for him, his family, and the village, and return it in an unexpected and glorious way. The moment, the moment when the water uh, begins to sputter out of the pump and then finally flows freely and it begins to, to water the, the extremely parched soil, it's truly a glorious moment. But even more glorious is the reconciliation between father and son and between people and land. This is what Jesus means when he says the Son of Man has been glorified and God has been glorified in him. Because it's in this moment that he shows his determination no matter what we do to reconcile us to each other, to reconcile us to God, and to reconcile us to the rest of creation. He takes it all and returns it back to the Father a life of faithfulness in a particular time, in a particular place. And because of Jesus' love, the Spirit, like water, is poured out freely onto a parched world, a dry world, dry bones. And that Spirit gives us life, animating us to go into the world and repair our relationships with one another repair relationships in the world, a world that is parched and desperate and in need of this repair. This is what Christ does, creating the possibility for nothing less than for us to live now in this place with these people to experience nothing other, nothing less, nothing short than glory. May it be so. Amen. Father of our Lord, our brother, and your Son, Jesus Christ, we come to you because you are the source of all glory. And so we come to you bringing this world with us, bringing our relationships with us, bringing especially the things that have been discarded by this world. We bring it all to you, Lord. And we ask you to receive it and bring it into the kingdom. Bring it into your future. Redeem, repair, restore it all, Lord. We ask in your son's name. Amen.
May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders and the glory he has shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Amen. Go in peace.